Welcome, everybody, to episode 11 of the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel. This week, we're going to do another gear shootout, and we are going to compare the Schnee's Beartooth boots against the Lathrop and Sons Mountain Hunters. I've owned both these boots for an extensive period of time, and I went through the Lathrop and Sons customized fitting process. So I definitely feel like I've compiled enough experience with these two boots that I can fairly put them head to head. And I think we're going to use this review as an opportunity to also cover some boot basics like sizing issues and different boots for different hunts. But ultimately, the goal will be to compare these two boots. As always, um, I appreciate all of the engagement. So if you can take a moment to like, comment, share, subscribe, it would be greatly appreciated. If you need to get a hold of me for whatever reasons, questions, comments, concerns, j at mindfulhunter.com, Instagram, mindful underscore hunter, or on YouTube, mindful underscore hunter. Any of those will work equally well. So we're going to kick things off with a training discussion this week. And it's a very opportune time to have that discussion because I'm kind of just switched gears in a fairly significant way. So I am four weeks out from my goat hunt, which is going to be the last week of February. And I just switched up my plan a little, a little under a week ago. Basically, I wanted to switch things up five weeks out. So let me, the general context. So for the past well, for the past two years, really, but very specifically for the last three months, I've been on a bulking cycle. I put on a significant amount of weight. The peak that I hit was 265 pounds um, as of the end of last week. And the focus has been solely on eating and lifting. That being said, I was doing weighted backpack hikes for probably the first two thirds of that time. And then the weight and with all the supplements and all the food, it just gets to the point where you kind of start to break down a little bit on the weighted hikes. And I didn't want to beat my body up for no reason. So I switched to non-weighted hikes just to try and keep my cardio up and make sure I didn't lose too much of my, you know, mountain conditioning. But ultimately the priority was lifting and, and putting on size. So once I hit that five weeks out from the hunt window, it was time to switch things up. My general overall principle with training for mountain hunts is that I try to be in shape all year, and then I look at using the last four to five weeks before a hunt to kind of peak for that hunt. Now, if there's extenuating circumstances or it's particularly challenging or, you know, uh, I had a hunt coming up and COVID was kicked off and the gyms were closed, so I had a lot more time to prep for that one and do a lot of the more typical mountain training that I do, but I really only need four to five weeks to kind of peak my conditioning for a hunt. I think too much longer than that. And you're just causing excess wear and tear on your body for no reason. Um, so I like to be, I'm in my forties. So I like to be really judicious with my training and decide where I'm going to exert that energy. So with all that being said, what did I do to switch things up? So I brought all my supplements down to a more manageable level. I also took my calories and dropped those. I wouldn't say significantly. My goal is to, is to maintain over the next four to five weeks. I will drop a little bit of water weight and drop a little bit of glycogen just because I've dropped some supplements and I've dropped some food. However, um, because I'm keeping my calories at maintenance, my my actual mass will stay relatively the same. Ultimately, I don't think it's wise to diet going into a hunt 
or diet on a hunt. You see guys do this all the time who might be a little bit overweight and they're like, shit, I got a hunt in a month. I need to lose 20 pounds. And you're basically starving your body while you're trying to increase your performance. And those two goals are counterproductive. So if you drop your calories, your performance is going to drop. Simple math. For the most part, if you up your calories, your performance will increase to a point of diminishing returns. My goal is to keep calories at maintenance level. So this is basically where I can just flatline. Don't want to lose any weight. Don't want to put on any weight. But I want enough calories that I can go out, train hard, and not lose any weight and not be in a point where I'm, I've, I've run out of calories and I'm using from my stores in order to feed the workout because that's not ideal for this type of training. So that's the diet. So basically I just knocked all my carb meals down by like 50 grams a piece. So for instance, most of my meals at, for the last little while have had 280 grams of carbs, like 280 grams of rice or 280 grams of potatoes. And I knocked those all back to 230. So I'll ride that out at 230 grams for the next week or so, keeping an eye on my weight. If my weight drops drastically, I'll put some carbs back in. And if my weight continues to go up, I will take some more carbs out and I'll just kind of play with that until up to the hunt. So just to reiterate, I don't recommend dieting going into a hunt and I don't recommend dieting on a hunt. I've already talked about the first one. The second one, I think also bears discussion. I see guys do this where they'll like purposely take less food than is required so that they can like lose a couple pounds on a hunt. And I just think the ultimate priority needs to be performance. And that's got to come before everything. Go on a diet when you get home. And here's the, the deal. And I don't mean to sound like a dick. You're doing it because you have no willpower uh, and you don't have the ability to not eat like shit when you're back at home. So you're using the restrictive component of being out in the elements in order to facilitate losing a few pounds. And I, I wish more people would just recognize that's an inappropriate way to approach the situation. Anyways, rant aside. So that's diet. Drop carbs a little bit, kept protein the same, kept fat the same. Now, as far as training goes, so historically, I have been lifting five days a week, and then I've been doing cardio one day a week. Sometimes I do that on the same day. Normally, I do it on one of my off days, and then I make sure I get at least one true off day per week. So up until recently, my split has been chest and shoulders, primarily side and front delts, back and shoulders, primarily rear delts and traps could fall under shoulders or back. So anyways, that all goes on back day. Then I do quads, then arms, and then hamstrings. And I facilitate my days off. So at least one of my days off falls in between quads and hamstrings. So I always have at least two days between quads and hamstrings. And some days it works. Sometimes it works out where I'll actually get three. So five day split, five days lifting, one day doing cardio is what I've been doing up till now. Now that I'm kicking it into hunt mode, um, I experimented with this last time I prepped for my elk hunt back in September and it worked really well. The problem with training legs really hard is it actually impacts my ability to do weighted hikes. I, I can't do a weighted hike for two to three days after a big leg day. I just am physically incapable of doing it. So what I do now, last week, two weeks before the hunt, I just dropped legs entirely and I found I lost no size. And in fact, I got some additional definition from the weighted 
backpack cardio. So I'm going to be even more aggressive this time and I'm going to go four weeks out. So I'm going to stop doing legs altogether, which will basically bring my, my training regimen down to a three day split. So my goal will be uh, next week to do two weighted backpack hikes. Now the hike that I do takes me an hour and a half. It's four miles. There's a thousand feet in elevation gain and there's only over 500 stairs. And according to my Apple watch, I burn about you know, a thousand to 1200 calories on this hike. It's fairly intense. I haven't tracked it with the whoop yet. Cause I actually lost my whoop battery and I'm waiting for a new one in the mail. And I haven't actually done the weighted backpack hike since I bought the whoop. I'll be interested to see what kind of strain figure I get from the whoop on this hike. Anyways, it's an intense hike. Like when you're done, you're fucking done. So the goal is to do that two times next week and then three times the next three weeks in a row. I want to be doing this hike three times a week. And then I want to be lifting three times a week. And if anything gets sacrificed, I will sacrifice a day of lifting. I want to take a moment here and talk about like preservation of gains. As long as I'm moderately active and my diet doesn't go to shit, it really doesn't matter what I do for a month. People get super stressed out about losing size you will feel somewhat deflated, but then when you get back into the gym and you up your calories again, like you puff right back up. It, it, it's not like that muscle actually goes anywhere. Now, if you just went and sat on your ass for six straight months, that's a different story. So I will say it again. As long as I'm moderately active and I don't eat like shit, I'm not concerned about losing any of my actual gains. So I need to prioritize hunt conditioning over everything else. Now that last week, there's another caveat. I might only do two, maybe one hike. It depends. I want at least four to five days off of hiking of any kind before the first day of the hunt. I used to train right up until I left for a hunt and I would find I would get to a hunt and my legs still weren't recovered from the training. And so you were kind of hamstringing yourself right out of the gate. So now I've realized there is more of a benefit to be realized from extending your kind of break before the hunt than there is deficit to be realized from missing that potentially one last training session. And here's the other thing. If, if you're bored or if you really just want to go train, go do arms or something um, because you can still go to the gym and break a sweat, but specifically stay off your legs. That's, um, that's my theory anyways. Okay, so quick recap. Drop some calories, drop some supplements. Goal is to stay at maintenance between now and leaving for the hunt, accounting for the extra caloric requirements from my additional cardio. Training, dropping back to three days a week lifting, potentially two. Ditch lower body, only train upper body, and do weighted backpack hikes with 50 pounds at least three times per week for the next month. That's the goal. So I will keep you guys updated how that goes. I'll share some of the whoop data once that gets going. Um, and yeah, if you've got any questions about training for hunts, let me know. I've already gone on several rants about this podcast about, you know, CrossFit style Metcon training for hunts and how I think it's utter and complete horse shit. And then if you like doing it, I support it hundred percent, but I see no functional need for it in hunting whatsoever. So I'm not going to waste time and kind of go through that again, even though I guess I sort of just did. But if you have any questions about 
why I approach training the way I do, um, please feel free to get in touch. Uh, one more thought that I'll close out with. My ultimate goal is just to replicate what I do when I'm hunting. So if I'm going to be walking around in the mountains with uh, a heavy backpack on my back when I'm going hunting, then in my opinion, the best way to train for that is to do just that. And that's worked out really well for me in the past. So I'm going to continue doing it moving into the future. All right, time for this week's gear corner. Now we don't have a piece of hunting gear per se this week. We have a piece of gear that I use to help me film. Um, and not even necessarily just on hunts, but in like doing the podcast and some other stuff. So I don't know for those of you who can, uh, who are watching this right now, I'm, I'm holding it up. The piece of gear that we're talking about is the tentacle track E, which is essentially a portable lav mic. A lav mic is essentially any mic that you wear on your collar. Like you see them all the time with like little black kind of puffy windscreen. Uh, you see people wear them during interviews and a bunch of other situations. Now, what makes the track E particularly interesting? There's a few things that makes it interesting, but this, the, the, the single most uh, kind of important thing that made it so remarkable that I kind of went out and bought it is that it uses 32-bit floating point technology. So this might not mean a whole lot to some of you, but I want you to think about it like this. When you are recording sound levels, you're always trying to optimize your signal-to-noise ratio. So if you record at maximum gain, you will definitely have enough signal. You will record your voice, but it's likely going to be hot. You're probably going to be clipping. It's going to be going into the red and you're going to be losing information. Also, you're going to pick up all the ambient noise that is in the area. So you're going to pick up a lot of noise with your signal as well. Well, then one might ask, well, why not just turn your gain down? so that your signal's not as hot. And that way you record less noise. It's a good point, and often that's what you should do. However, when you turn the gain down, you're also gonna be collecting less signal. Now, in normal environments, this isn't a big deal because somebody can be monitoring the audio. Like for instance, right now I have a little Zoom recorder that I kind of keep just out of um, frame. And I can actually look at it in the corner of my eye and I can see where the levels are hitting. And I'm like between minus six and kind of minus three dB. So it's a very sweet spot, makes for great editing. I still have a lot of what you would call headroom. So I can push the mix a little bit. I'm not clipping, but it's also quiet enough that I don't pick up a lot of the ambient noise in the house. Now, when I was doing the tent podcast last week, I had to mic myself, but when you're mic'd yourself, you can't monitor audio at the same time. The really intense, and I don't even understand the technology a thing about 32-bit floating point technology is that it has kind of infinite headroom and an infinite noise floor, if that makes any sense. But essentially, I never have to worry that my mic is going to be too hot. I also never have to worry that my mic is going to be too quiet because with 32 bit, no matter how loud it is or how quiet it is, it would never actually clip. 
And again, I, I don't even comprehend the mathematics of how this is possible because I've always been, I was in music for a long time before, even before I got into hunting, I had a fairly significant career in the music industry. And I was always an analog guy. So you were dealing with like hard limits, like when things went red, the, the data was gone. Like there was no way of recovering that. So this kind of trips my mind out. They're not cheap. It's about 400 bucks. I was super impressed uh, with the audio quality I got out of that tent podcast. I clipped it to my belt and I just totally didn't even think about it. It's, it's USB charged. So you never have to worry about batteries. There's a, I think there's a 64 gig uh, SD card in there. So you could probably record like 40 or 50 hours of audio. The audio quality was superb. The construction quality is superb. It, it pairs with your iPhone. So I can actually open up the iPhone and verify. Yeah, it's recording. It's got led meter right on the hardware device itself. So if you didn't have a phone, you can pair multiple versions of these and have them run off the same time code. I'm not going to get into the, to the details of what time code is. It's basically when you're in a multiple camera, multiple audio device setting, like a professional movie recording or something, everything is synced to time code. And that's not really like the time of day. It's a little bit different than that, but you could use that as an analogy and it would work. And that way, when you bring everything into post, you don't have to like manually synchronize everything. You just import your time code into the timeline. And then when you drop data in, it just syncs up to the time code automatically. So you could have, I was actually thinking if I ever did a big group hunt and we were going to do a couple podcasts, I wouldn't even bother with the big zoom and a bunch of like big microphones and headsets, I would just bring four or five of these tentacle track E's. I wouldn't have to ever worry about people clipping. I wouldn't have to monitor sound and we could just report, record a podcast. Um, and I would sync them all later in post. Um, so a bit nerdy for you hunting for just the purebred hunting guys. You probably don't have a spot for it in your arsenal, but for you guys who are doing any type of like film work, a uh, super cool device. If you want a more detailed breakdown on it, and this is how I found out about it. Look up a YouTube channel called Gerald undone. I think he is undisputedly the kind of best kind of video audio nerd on YouTube and he's Canadian, super smart guy and kind of gets into more than nitty gritty about why the track E is so cool. And he's a very critical reviewer and he was, he was kind of, you know, fanboying over this thing as well. So that was what gave me the confidence to go pull the trigger on it. So anyways, if you're looking for a lav mic, uh, tentacle track E, um, super high quality, highly recommend it. All right, let's get into the nuts and bolts of the podcast today, the actual boot review. So as usual, I'm going to give a bit of my background and why I consider myself to have a credible voice in this space. So I'm 42 now. I did my first year of tree planting the summer I was 22. So you could arguably say I've been wearing boots in fairly extreme mountain conditions, for the last 20 years. And I've probably gone through more than 20 pairs of boots because I would have been buying multiple boots per year because I would have had work boots, which in BC, you have to have corks. I would have been buying hiking boots. And so let's say I've probably had 30 pairs of boots over those 20 years. And once I stopped tree planting, 
I got into engineering and that also required kind of mountain style boots. Again, legally you have to wear corks. And if you don't know what corks are, they're basically spikes on the bottom of your boot. The newer, the newer ones are kind of ceramic tipped. They're not just sharp stainless steel. Um, and it helps you walk on logs and just not slip when you're in the woods. I always thought it kind of funny that nobody ever wears them hunting because some of the places we go, they would be really handy, but also if you come across like anything hard, like any type of rock or gravel or conglomerate, um, it's insanely loud uh, to walk on cork. So that I'm assuming that's why hunters have never used them. Um, so I've worn a lot of boots and I've worn a lot of boots in different mountain environments. And I think tree planting was kind of the best testing grounds for boots because you were just basically beating the shit out of them from day one. I never had a pair of boots last more than a single season. Um, getting a full season out of a pair of boots without having to duct tape the shit out of them was basically a success. Um, I've done everything from wearing like pretty hardcore mountaineering boots to taking more like speed hiking boots. And I even had my hiking boots recorked. So I took like a pair of Solomons, had the soles shaved off and a cork plate installed, used that for tree planting one year. Those were super cool boots. I've used a lot of single layer leather boots, um, like Viber corks, which is like, they're kind of like a pack boot. Like they have a leather upper and a rubber bottom and then corks on the bottom of that. That's kind of like my go-to. And then normally with a felt liner, that's kind of my go-to work boot on the coast. That's what I like the best. I don't like the orange pumpkin boots, uh, but that's just my taste. So one other thing to keep in mind, as far as my experience with boots, I have Morton's Neuroma in my right foot. So basically between my third and fourth metatarsal, I have an inflamed nerve and there's really, it's just like a genetic oddity. They don't really know what the cause is of it. My, my mom had it, my grandma had it, my brother had it. So I think you just have a genetic predisposition. And then if you spend too much time on your feet, it gets inflamed. About four or five years ago, it got to the point where I, I couldn't even hike anymore. I could barely walk for more than five minutes. I couldn't wear dress shoes. It was like basically like somebody was sticking a hot poker in between my toes. Like, and if I walked for too long and it got too inflamed, I wouldn't be able to think straight. It would throb so painfully that the only thing I could do is like take some Advil and just lay down and hope that it would kind of clear up. Um, I went through a, a shit ton of procedures kind of over a two year period. Cause I just got sick of it and I was doing pretty well professionally. So I had some money and I, first I had a surgery that they went in, they cut one of the tendons attached to it, hoping to give it more room. Then I went back in and had a second surgery where they actually cut out the nerve. Then I went down to, um, a, a specialty clinic in Boston and I got cryoablation. Cryoablation is basically where they take these ice crystals on the end of needles, insert them into your foot and basically drag the ice crystals across the nerve ending killing the nerve. That's what ablation means is like destroying the nerve. So it couldn't send pain signals anymore. And then what I also did at that clinic is I got stem cells injected into my foot, my own stem cells. So I actually had to go in one day, they drilled into my spine or sorry, my pelvis in my back by my spine, pulled out bone marrow from my pelvis spun the bone marrow, pulled the stem cells out of the bone marrow, and then injected them into my foot. That same trip, I also got PRP, platelet-rich plasma. So I got the cryoablation, I got the PRP, and the PRP, they basically withdraw blood from your body, spin it, 
capture all the platelets and then inject that because they're like the super healers of the blood, inject that into the target area. And I got the stem cells. The whole thing cost me like 10 grand US. It was fucking crazy. And I basically flew to Boston. They beat the shit out of me for two days. And then I flew back home. And I got all that stuff done and it was still pretty bad. Like it was tolerable, but I got to be honest with you. I think it just took a little while for it to settle out. So now that it's been a couple of years from all those procedures, I'd say it's about 10% as painful as it used to be. Like I can really just, and now that I know that I'm not doing any like physical damage to my body and it's just a pissed off nerve that's sending pain signals, I just beat the fuck out of it and deal with the pain. That being said, Boots have always been kind of crucial to me because the fit of a boot will not only be somewhat uncomfortable or potentially produce hot spots, but if it flares up my neuroma, I'm cooked. So I'm particularly sensitive to boot sizings. Again, not so much now, but I definitely was previously. I've got a little bit more leeway now. What I discovered was the wide toe box. So I really like, if you've ever seen ultras, they have this like, they call it the natural toe box. It's like gives your toes room to splay. And I've kind of learned over the years now from using toe boxes like that. I think that's how all toe boxes should be designed. You need more room for your feet than you think you need. Um, Cause your feet are meant to act as like suspension. Like the arch is like having a, a shock absorber in your foot and the way your toes splay out, help dissipate impact when your foot hits the ground. And when you start cramming your foot into a boot, you're basically negating all the natural kind of shock absorption properties of your foot. And you're kind of just walking around on two hard stumps. Um, all that being said, keep that in mind because it did make me very sensitive to boot sizing and I got very picky and I started doing a shit ton of research. It's one of the reasons why I feel comfortable talking about this on the podcast because I've, I've worn basically everything under the sun and I feel like I've put it through its paces. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is sizing. You have to try a boot on. I get really frustrated when I see all these people asking on Q&As, what's the best boot? The best boot is the boot that fits you the best. So you have to try boots on to know how they're going to conform to your foot. Even if you don't live next to major stores, there are, unless they're custom boots, there are no boot manufacturers or boot retailers that won't accept boots being returned. I do it all the time. I will even order the same boot in two different sizes, or I'll order two comparable boots in what size I know is going to fit or whatever. Like I do it all the time. And I, I get them, I wear them around the house for an hour and I'm like, yep, I like these ones. Nope, I don't like these ones. Sometimes you can have them in-store delivered and it saves you the return charges. I do that at Mech all the time. You can do the same thing at REI. Go on. I was comparing the La Sportiva Nepal GTXs to the Scarpa Mont Blanc Pros. And by all accounts, the Mont Blancs should have been wider based on reviews, based on technical specifications. These are like six, $700 boots. I ordered them both into MEC. I went in and tried them on and the last Sportivas were way wider than the Mont Blancs. And they were also way more comfortable. And that you're only gonna know that shit by trying them on. So stop asking people what the best boot is. Start ordering a shit ton of boots and just try them on and see what fits your foot the best. I said this before, but I think most people are in boots that are too small. I used to be under the impression that a mountain boot should compress your foot. You shouldn't have any play because that's how you get hot spots. 
and you had more stability if your foot wasn't sliding around in the boot. The more research I've done and the more professionals in the industry that I've talked to, I've discovered it was a very incorrect assumption that I had. And in fact, you should have, I, I urge people to size up half a size, especially by the time you put on like a heavy duty hiking sock. I want at least, you know, a, a quarter to a half an inch or more room between my toe, at least half an inch between your toe and the end of the boot, potentially even three quarters of an inch, depending on how the, the boot fits. And if you can, I look for boots that you can tighten on the instep really aggressively because that is going to suck your heel into the heel pocket, but it's going to leave room for your toes to splay out. And then when you're walking downhill, you're not going to get that thing where the, the front of your toes slam into the end of your boots. I've had multiple times when I got home from hunts a week later, one of my nails turned black and fell off. And the reason that happens is that the boots are too small. So that's another test I like to do. I will put my boot on, I will cinch it up good and tight, and then I will kick the floor with my toe. Or I'll walk up to my stairs and I'll kick the facing of one of the stairs with my toe. And if my toe slams into the end of the boot when I kick the stair, the boot is not big enough. I need a little bit more room up there. This is something else that I only discovered this year. Your insole should not even be tight in your boot. The recommendation is to have one eighth of an inch to one quarter of an inch play in your insole so that your insole actually has a little bit of room to move around within your boot. That's also gonna allow the boot to swell and for things to not get overly cramped in there. So now that I've started adjusting all of my insoles to give it that little bit of wiggle room and started wearing boots that fit me properly, the vast majority of my foot problems have, have gone away. So those are two big tips that, you know, I would like you to keep in mind moving forward. Now, as far as boots that I've owned from different manufacturers, I've owned Hanvogs, Ultras, which are more like a trail running shoe, but I actually did this big comparison. That's a video you can go watch on my channel too. I, I looked at comparing the Ultras as a hunting boot. And I use them for a season down in uh, Arizona. There's some definite benefits to do that. So Hanvog, Ultra, Solomon, Morel, Lathrop and Sons, Schnees, La Sportiva. I'm sure there's a couple other in there, but that's the vast majority of them that I've, that I've owned. And I've, and I've owned several different boots from each of those kind of manufacturers. So let's start talking about what type of different boots there are and what type of different situations call for which boot. I will say I prefer leather boots to synthetic boots for a couple of reasons. And I will open up by saying I, I might just be biased because I'm a bit old school and I just, I like the look and feel of leather boots and it just, just I just trust leather. Um, I think there are some more advanced qualities in some of the synthetic fibers and textiles that they use, but I still believe that for boots overall, over the long run, leather is a superior material, but that's not something I, I do think that's partially opinion. It's not all fact. So if you're a synthetic boot guy, I'm not going to tell you to stop wearing synthetic boots because if that's what you feel does the trick for, for your particular hunting style, then rock out. There's lots of great synthetic boots, but I will say my recommendations for the most part are going to fixate on leather boots because I prefer them. Now, why do I prefer them? 
One, I find they can form better to my foot after time. Once you put 50 or 100 miles on a pair of leather boots, get them wet and let them dry a couple times, especially while your foot is inside them. They just turn into a glove, man. They just mold around your foot and they're the way they're supposed to be. One caveat to that is once you have a pair of leather boots warmed up, if you take them off for whatever reason, like to adjust your socks or let something dry out and put them back on while they're still warm and maybe a little bit moist, you do have to be careful tightening them up because you can really crank on them after that. So I only normally give them like an 80% tug. If I'm like, say I stop for lunch, I let my feet air out. When I put my boots back on, I won't give them that same kind of yank that I do when I'm tightening them up at the truck. The other lacing tip I will give you Don't focus on tightening the laces above your toes. I mentioned this earlier. Focus on tightening the laces at the instep. You will notice a lot of the new boots have a lace lock right at the instep. That's exactly what this is for. Tightening the laces across your toes is going to compress your foot and it's going to, again, negate the shock absorption qualities of the foot itself. Tightening it at the instep is going to just suck that heel back into the heel pocket and it's still going to allow the mechanics of the foot to operate correctly. So that's another big one that I think is important to note. I also believe that um, leather boots are more water repellent over the long run when treated correctly. Um, There's some caveats to that, but using the right um, products at the right time, at the right frequency, I think you're going to get a better water repellent product long-term out of a pair of leather boots. I also tend to prefer higher boots, like eight to 10 inch uppers. And I find for some reason, I don't know why most synthetic boots kind of just only run to six inches. I like them higher for Creek crossings. I find if you have a good pair of boots, they're laced up good and tight, and you're not dawdling across the stream, I can go in over my ankle all day and not get wet feet or just moderately damp. As soon as you go in over the lip of the cuff, you're fucked. Even if it doesn't surge right in, your whole pant leg and sock is going to get soaked and then that's going to wick down into your boot. I like higher cuffs on my boots and I find traditionally leather boots tend to have higher cuffs. Yeah, that's that. That's about it as far as why I like leather boots more. And again, I will say as a disclaimer, it's it could also be partially biased. Like I just, I like the traditional feel of a good leather boot. I like the way they smell and maybe not after you wear them too long, but I just, I like, I like putting conditioning on them. I like waterproofing them. I like, I just like gear that you can like use and take care of and last a really long time. So I prefer leather boots. Okay, let's get into a little bit of like Boots 101. So they run the gamut from like a trail runner to a mountaineering boot and then everything in between. So a trail runner would literally be like a sneaker that may or may not be waterproof, would probably have a very thick lugged sole. It's going to be hyper flexible, like a piece of paper. Um, And it's going to be used for people who run on trails. I have used them for hunting. I do know people who use them for hunting. I don't think they're ideal for hunting. And as we get into the rest of this podcast, you're going to find out why. All the way on the other end of the spectrum, we're going to have like a mountaineering boot, which would be like um, like a Koflatch or the high-end Scarpas. And I can't remember the, la- the name of the last Sportivas 
Yeah, they're, but they would have a plastic shell. They're going to be like wearing a two by four. They're basically like a brick. They're like a ski boot. The super high-end mountaineering boots are almost identical to ski boots, except the angle of your ankle flexion is going to be a little bit reduced, but they're going to literally be that rigid, that hard. They're meant for like climbing Everest and shit. Now, if we come one notch down from there, I would have what we call in our industry mountaineering boots. That's a sheep boot. That's going to be like a Schnee's Granite or a La Sportiva Nepal or a Scarpa Mont Blanc. Like these are going to be extremely rigid boots. Let's use a scale of one to four because that's what Schnee's uses and I really like their scale. A four is going to be like that sheep mountaineering boot and a, a one or even a zero would be a trail runner. Let's say a zero is a trail runner. And a one would be like a hyper-flexible Solomon hiking boot, just a little bit more rigid than that trail runner. So once we come down from the sheep boot, now we're getting into the, the kind of middle of the road. This would be like the Lathrop and Sons uh, mountain hunter. So we're talking the two and three territory. This is going to be the Schnee's bear tooth. Okay. So once we get past our twos and threes, now we're down in the ones. This is going to be like a Schnee's Timberline. I think they're Kestrel. Most of the Solomon hiking boots, like these are hyper flexible. So right out of the gate for me personally, I don't roll with the ones. Here's why. No matter how I deal the hunting circumstance, there's a chance I'm coming out fully loaded. Unless it was like a scouting trip and there was no possibility of me bringing out an animal. If I'm coming out with in excess of 100 pounds on my back, for your own safety, you should have a somewhat stiff boot. This is where people's arguments about the lighter boots tend to break down for me. I don't argue that you can get around in the woods safely and efficiently with a more flexible shoe. I will, however, argue quite aggressively that you cannot get out of the mountains with the majority of an animal on your back without a somewhat stiff-soled boot, like with a stiff shank in it, like a number two and up. So then the question you need to ask yourself is what kind of terrain am I, because really the question to me for the vast majority of hunters is, do I want to be in a two, three, or a four? I don't personally believe there's any place for ones in hunting. So I would, the variables that I'm going to take into account when I'm deciding that are going to be how heavy is my pack and for how long, okay? So if I'm going in light but could come out heavy, then that's going to give me more flexibility. If I'm going in heavy and might come out heavy, you know, the going in light and coming out heavy is like an elk bivy hunt. You're only going in for two to four days at a time. You're going to regroup at the truck and keep going back in. You could get away with a two in that situation because you're only, the only time you're going to be really heavy is when you're coming out loaded. Having the more mobility and agility, especially if you're going to be like running around trying to make plays on bugling bulls. I think a two is a great boot, like the, the, the you know, something in line with the mountain hunter or the bear tooth. And I will we'll get into it later, but I think the mountain hunter is more of like a three and the bear tooth is more of like a two. I think those twos and threes are perfectly acceptable for, for elk hunting, um, mule deer hunting, all that kind of stuff. The caveat is if you're going in for a 12 day mule hunt and you're carrying a 70 pound pack, 
then I would say you probably want to get up into the threes and fours because now you're going to be putting, I mean, who knows, man, maybe you're hiking in 10, 15, 20 miles, and maybe you're going to hike another five miles a day, you know, looking for the deer with potentially your entire camp on your back. So the first variable that we want to look at just to recap here is weight. So it's not only the amount of weight, but how long that weight might be on your back. Okay. Second variable is terrain. And more importantly, this is a bit of a nuance. I don't really care about going up and down. I, I feel pretty confident going up and down in even slightly more flexible boots. Where you're going to run into problems is the side hills. We are not designed particularly well to walk on side hills for long periods of time. And I find it's an area that most people neglect when they train. It's kind of nice. The trail that I hike has this huge section at the top where you're basically walking across this like grassy slope that's on like a, maybe a 30 degree pitch and you have to side hill it the whole way. And my calves are normally lit up by the time I get to the opposing side. Um, I'll even do it back and forth a couple times every now and then just to like really drill my side hilling. So if there's going to be an extensive amount of side hilling, you know, for example, a sheep hunt in, in particular, that's when you want to be up in the neighborhood of the fours. So I'm leaving on this goat hunt in four weeks, and then I have a big sheep hunt this summer. I'm going to be using the La Sportiva Nepals. I'm going to get into that more in a bit, but they are absolutely a four. They are that mountaineering sheep boot. Um, so th th that to me is like, that's how you start filtering this problem. What boot should I be in? How much weight am I going to be carrying? How long am I going to be carrying it for? And how aggressive is the terrain? Once you've answered those questions, then you can start saying, okay, that's the stiffness I want. What boots exist from which manufacturers that I trust that fulfill this qualification? And I, I, the problem is most people go about it ass backwards. They're like, oh, Krispies and everybody's fucking YouTube videos. So I'm going to go buy Krispies. And then they just buy the Krispies that, that they think work for them. And it's like, you're going about it backwards. First decide what you want the boot to do for you. Then go look at what manufacturers build a boot that fulfills those qualifications for you. I will say much like rain gear, we can have a good, better, best. And, and we don't all have budgets to have the best for every hunt. If you can only buy one pair of boots, buy a pair of boots in that two to three range, because it's not like you're not going to be able to go on a sheep hunt. And it's not like you're not going to be able to do like a more, you know, sure-footed, quick, agile elk hunt. You'll be able to do both. You're not going to die. Best case scenario, you would have different boots for each hunt because they're pretty drastically different hunts. But I would say the two to three is like your all-arounder, that boot in the middle of the road, pretty stiff, not too stiff, decently high cuff, you're going to survive. I believe aftermarket insoles are a must. There's a company called Soul, S-O-L-E. The best ones they make, in my opinion, are the performance medium and the active medium. So they sell three widths of insoles, thin, medium, and thick. I've tried all three. I use the thins in my dress shoes and my blundstones because I want more room in the toe box. And I'm not doing like super aggressive walking in either of those. 
I've tried the fix, but they eat up too much room in the toe box and they, and they squish my foot. So I've landed on the mediums and I use the actives and the performance. To be honest, they're fairly identical. I'd probably give the performances the slight edge because the actives have a cork bottom and I find they don't, they're not as rigid and they don't hold their shape for as long as the performances do. Also, for anyone who has metatarsal issues or Morton's neuroma or any other similar condition, they sell met pads installed on both of those. So it's basically like this little hump that helps splay out the metatarsals of your foot more effectively. I really want to try sheep feet. Sheep feet still don't ship to Canada, which sucks. And because of COVID, I would normally just drive across the border, order them, drive across, pick them up, mold them, send them back, you know, do that. But I can't do that right now because of COVID. So I literally don't even have a way to get sheep feet into Canada to, to do the molds and then send them back. But I'm hoping at some point in the future, these border restrictions are going to lift and I'll be able to order a pair of sheep feet and I'll do a very thorough review once I get that opportunity. Okay, let's talk about water treatment options here. And I wanted to find the difference between a single layer leather boot and like a dual layer or a complex layered leather boot. A single layer boot would be like those ones I was saying, like the Vibergs or like a pack boot is another really good example, like from Schnee's, where it's literally just a hunk of Nubuck leather. It's normally like a couple mils thick. In those cases, I like to use some type of wax. So I will either use um, Snow Seal or Obenhouse LP paste um, because you don't have to worry about Gore-Tex or anything else. So that's what I like to use for those boots. Now, in a complex boot where there's some Gore-Tex layers involved, I prefer Nick Wax. They make a couple of different products um, depending on the boot, but they're normally like this like pasty kind of wax material, um, and they will waterproof your boot without compromising the Gore-Tex layers. So that's what I recommend for more complex boots. Okay, now that we have all that out of the way, let's start with the Lathrop & Sons. So this is a particularly traditional kind of leather boot. Um, it uses Event instead of Gore-Tex. I would say it's maybe like an eight inch upper. It really drops down towards the heel, which is a little bit unfortunate. One nice thing about these boots is that it has um, a particularly high rand. And so the rand is the rubber layer that goes around the outside kind of edge of the leather part of the boot and kind of contacts into the sole, um, which is quite nice. It's very firm Rand. Um, I've used these boots on three mountain hunts and I broke them in with about 50 to 75 miles of hiking. So I've done well over a couple hundred miles in these boots. The construction quality is quite high. Um, I found the waterproof um, component, uh, quite acceptable. They've got a Vibram sole, which is quite nice. You're going to be hard pressed to find a high-end boot these, these days that doesn't use Vibram soles. That's kind of like a deal breaker for me. If you don't have a Vibram sole, one nice thing about all Vibram soles is that replaceable. So if you had some kind of manufactured defect, or if you just wore the shit out of your boots, um, the leather uppers tend to last longer than the rubber bottoms, so you could go have them resold and you'd have essentially a new pair of boots. The roller hardware on the Lathrops is quite nice. Now, 
they do not have a locking instep lacing mechanism, which is like a little bit of a drawback for them. But um, let's say I was just going to evaluate this boot just on what I said just now. I would give it like a seven and a half out of 10. It's going to get a bit of a deduction because I don't like, it doesn't have a, a locking instep lacing mechanism. I don't like that this drops back here um, on the calf. There's like almost a two inch difference or an inch and a half difference. And so that's where water is going to, going to scoot in right there when I'm crossing creeks, especially because you tend to kick up water with the toe of your rear foot and it's going to splash in the back of my leg and kind of go right in there. So there's a couple elements of the construction of the boot. It's a fairly stiff boot. The thing about the three, I would put this as a three out of four. And the thing I don't really like about threes is like, you're getting borderline sheep stiff, which is like only really needed on sheepy kind of hunts. That's why I tend to either go in a two or be in a four. Like if I was going to have two pairs of boots, I'd have a two and a four because then you're covered for everything. And so again, it's like a little too stiff to be your just run of the mill elk boot, but then not stiff enough to be like a, you know, true dyed in the wool sheep boot. So as far as the boot itself, yeah, let's say seven and a half out of 10. It is what it is. Now let's talk about the customized fitting process. So here's how things work with Lathrop and Sons. You tell them you want a pair of boots and they ship you this package. Inside this package, there's like these little pressure sheets. Think of like those carbon copy sheets you used to write on and the carbon would go through the next layer. It's like that, but pressure transfers the carbon. So you basically use three of these sheets. You could do the same process three times. You step on it. It basically shows where the weight is distributed on your foot. You trace your foot, you take some pictures of your foot, and then you send it in. And their, their sales pitch is they then custom customize the boots based on this information. Not only do they customize the boots, they have these insoles called Synergy Footbeds, which are kind of like these jelly, floppy, soft insoles. I've never really seen anything else like them. They customize the footbeds, they customize the boots, they tell you they kind of build you a custom boot and they send it back to you. Before I get into this, I just want to say I've talked with, I'm pretty sure it was Steve extensively for probably multiple hours during this whole process. Everybody at Lathrop and Sons seems to be really nice. So I don't want my kind of review of this process to think that like, I don't like the guys at Lathrop or I don't like Lathrop as a company. I'm willing to admit that maybe this was just my one-off experience, but like just to fucking cut to the chase, the boots fit like shit, like just not good. I had multiple hot spots. I told him about my Neuroma issue. I told him I wanted a wide toe box. He looked at my printouts. He said, nope, you shouldn't be in a toe box. You should be, you shouldn't be in a wide box. You should be in a, a regular narrow box. They built the boots. They sent them to me. I wore them for like half an hour. I, the tops of both of my pinkies, pinky toes were like rubbing. Like what a weird thing to have rubbing. Like I don't even, I've never had this rub in any other boot I've ever owned. Um, I use these for 10 days on an elk hunt and I got like a quarter size like deep, deep blister 
I was taping it up every day. I did everything I could. I, I finished the hunt and I did what I did. They beat the shit out of my feet. They inflamed my neuroma instantly. Like just from putting the boot on, my feet started to ache. Um, it was garbage, man. I don't know how else to say it. It was shit. I sent them back. I took pictures of the areas, drew circles. I'm like too tight here. Don't like this. This needs to be loose. Like very clear instructions. Um, they were super nice. They took the boots back. They didn't charge me any more money. They apparently did something to the boots and they shipped the boots back and the boots fit identical. Then nothing changed whatsoever. Um, here's the kick in the nuts. By the time you, you, include everything, the cost of the boots, the cost of the footbeds, the cost of the fitting, the cost of the shipping and all that $1,200 I spent on this pair of boots and they fit my feet like shit. And this is after already sending them back once. So after sending them back once, I was like, there's no point in sending them back. I'm like, I'm just going to call it a loss. I didn't understand how they could possibly get these boots to fit my feet anyways. And that's why I was so strenuous at the beginning. Like you have to try boots on. And here's the other thing. I'm not sure how they're custom fitting boots to your feet when they only understand like one dimension, like your foot is a 3D object. And without any data about the volume of your foot or where your toes are, or like without some kind of 3D scan of the foot, I, how is it not marketing hype that they're custom building a boot for your foot? They, the only thing they know is like, where the pressure is on the bottom. And I kept asking them like time and time again, okay, can you tell me like what's custom about these boots? Like what exactly did you do to this boot that makes it different than if I just had a went on your site and like just bought a pair of boots over the counter? I was never able to get a straight answer. So, I mean, I'm just going to be really straight up and I don't like to throw people under the bus, but I, I, it was a really shitty process. It cost a shitload of money. And I got a really shitty boot at the end of the day. And I, I like, I'm not happy. I don't, it, you know, it was a really negative experience. So I do not recommend um, going through this whole process. I think it's a bit of smoke and mirrors to be completely honest with you. And the Synergy footbeds are garbage. They're like these little floppy rubber things that like don't offer any type of arch support. They don't have a heel cup to keep your heel sucked back into the boot. Like I've tried to use them in other boots and they were just shit. Like anyways, I'm kind of going off the deep end now and I'm sorry. I don't mean to be like completely rude. I'm sure they're good guys, but for my foot, and this is what's so important, other guys might buy these things and they fit like a dream. And I will say they are the identical price of the Beartooth, which we're going to get into shortly. They're both 450 bucks US over the counter. So if I hadn't have done any of the sizing stuff and spent the other $750 on their custom boot program, I would be comparing head to head. And I would just say that that the bear tooths fit my feet better. And then I wouldn't be going, what pissed me off about this process is they give you this song and dance about how custom their boots are. And then it's like, but they don't fit my feet, man. And I've sent them back already a second time. Like, I don't understand what else. Anyways, kind of smelled like bullshit to me. So that's where we're at with the Lathrop and Sons. On the actual construction and the quality of the boot, I'm going to give it like a 7.5. On the quality of the experience, and that then the fitment and the final, you know, wearing experience of the boot, I'm giving it a two. I think they're shit and I wouldn't touch them with a 10 foot pole. Um, but maybe you had them and you loved them and that's totally cool. Moving on, let's get into the bear tooths. One last point on the 
Lathrop and Sons is that the pair of boots themselves in size 14 that I wear are 4.75 pounds. That's with no insoles and nothing inside them. And before I forget, the bare tooths in size 14 with nothing inside them are 4.25 pounds. So a pair of bare tooths are a half a pound lighter than a pair of mountain hunters from Lathrop and Sons. So each boot is a quarter pound lighter. So just that's one last data point that I wanted to include. Um, all right, let's get into the bare tooth. This is essentially, you know, this is my kind of boot, man. Like it's a leather boot. It's got a nice solid, I don't know if it's like a nine inch upper, um, lots of coverage area. Water doesn't go down into it. The rolling hardware on the lacing system is fantastic. And unlike the Lathrop's, these do have a locking instep mechanism. So essentially when you reef on these and cross them, it clips this little clip down and applies enough pressure to the lace that the lace can't slide backwards. So you can kind of let go of the laces and they just stay there, which then allows you to do up the calves. You can do the toe slightly looser, crank down on the instep and do your calves slightly looser. And that gives you room for your foot to like move and breathe within the boot, but using the leverage force of that instep sucks your heel back into the heel cup of the insole. So that is a great point for me. Now, the one thing in the design I did, I do tend to prefer single leather boots, like single piece or as, as few elements of stitching as possible on leather boots. And there's basically like three main components to this one, which is like one more than I would like traditionally, but I've worn the shit out of these boots and there's no, no failure has occurred. All the stitching is held up and I, I haven't had to worry about it. And I haven't noticed because I treat them quite well. I haven't really noticed, um, any leakage coming in through the, um, through the seams. Um, again, this is a two in stiffness. So I would say that it's slightly less stiff than the Lathrop and Sons. Um, it's got a nice, um, tongue on it that kind of fits really well. The Rand is not as high. And I also would say it's not quite as thick. I would say the Lathrop and Sons, it, it kind of gets an additional point over the Schnees in the Rand in that it's slightly higher quality and it's slightly bigger. Uh, Vibram sole, just like on this. Um, I'm pretty sure Schnees uses Sympatex and Lathrop and Sons uses Event. Both of these are like versions of Gore-Tex made by different companies. Oh, so all you need to understand is it's like a waterproof breathable layer in your boot. Much like I covered on the Rain Gear episode though, nothing is ever gonna be truly waterproof and breathable. There's always going to be an element of, of compromise there. But I would say the, both boots are equal in that regard, like decent, decently waterproof. Um, again, I will treat these with Nick wax before every major hunt. And then at the end of the season, I use a leather conditioner and it's one I buy right from Schnee's. It's kind of like orange in color. I can't remember what it's, it might just be called leather conditioner. And I will put that on the leather before I put them in a storage tub for the winter and stick them away. And then when I get them back out, um, 
I, because I'm normally doing so much training and, and trail hiking, um, that kind of breaks them in and wears off all that conditioner. And then normally by the time I go on my first hunt of the season, I will be going, I I'm ready to put some waterproof on them. They sell these in a wide. So here's the thing. One boot as a customized fitting process. The other boot I bought directly off the shelf. The customized fitting boot feels like shit. I knew I needed a wide toe box. I bought the wide version. I bought it in size 14. These things fit magnificently from day one. Now, I'm not going to say they didn't take time to break in. Any good boot should take time to break in. If there is a zero break-in period, it's because the boots are too weak. They're too flexible and they're too light. That's why they're comfortable. That's why you don't have to break in sneakers. Any boot that is offering some form of decent support will need a break-in period. And normally the more support, the deeper the break-in period. I'm at like 75 miles break-in period with the last Sportiva. And it's only the last 10 or 20 miles that like I'm starting to fall in love with those mountaineering boots to the point I might even elk hunt in those things, man. Like they are so stable. They're not particularly heavy. They're leather as well. They look like they're synthetic because they're like bright neon yellow and spaceship colors, but that's a leather boot, man. There's some synthetic components on it, but it's a leather boot. Um, the last Sportiva is blowing my mind. Now it's a $600 boot. It, it exists in a whole different realm from these two boots that we're comparing as far as practicality. And most people would hate them. The first 50 miles, I hated them. My, my feet were sore. They felt really clunky. Like it was just terrible. But now that I've broken them in appropriately, like in the mountains, doing mountain hiking with 50 pounds on my back, that's the other thing you need to realize. The stiffer the boot, the better it's going to operate with weight on your back. Think about the suspension of a truck. You are meant to have weight in a truck for the suspension to work properly. When you don't have any weight in a truck, the suspension is very jarring. And that's just like a stiff boot. They, they work much better the more weight you put on your back. Anyways, I digress. Back to the Beartooths. Leather's really high quality. Fitment is really high quality. The insoles are garbage. They're these little thin felt things. So again, day one, rip those out, put the soles in, S-O-L-E. Um, the Rand is decent quality. I would give these things a nine out of 10 just on like fitment and build construction. I also like that they're a little bit lighter. Um, they're 450 bucks, same price as the... Lathrop and Sons are over the counter without the custom fitment process. I mean, I, I like, I hate to sound like I'm blowing smoke up somebody's ass, but like, in my opinion, if I was just going to own one boot from now until the end of my days, it would probably be these bear tooths. Um, there's still some other boots that Schnee's makes that I would like to try. I would, I'm also like a pretty diehard Schnee's guy at this point in time. And that's only because I now own a couple of their products and they've never let me down. I now own their pack boots and these, and I love both of them. Like just the fitment and the, 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 the construction quality is just beyond reproach. So I would like to try out maybe a three. I always wanted to buy their granites and I was going to buy their granites for my sheep hunt. But the problem was they don't have toe and heel welds, which means you can't use clip on crampons with the granites. And that's why I had to go with the La Sportiva um, Nepal's for my goat hunt. 
So I would like to try something in a three just for those slightly more mountainous hunts, but um, I've used these boots extensively now. I had them for all 10 days of my elk hunt in the Northern Rockies this year. I had them in Alberta. Um, I had them on a bear hunt. Um, I've worn the shit out of them. I love them. Um, I think they're for what they are, for the spot they fill in your closet, they are the perfect boot in my opinion. So it's no surprise what I'm about to, to tell you in that if for this gear shootout for the Schnee's Beartooth versus the Lathrop and Sons Mountain Hunter, the Schnee's Beartooth blows it out of the water. Um, the one caveat I will say is that if the Mountain Hunter just naturally fit your foot, you didn't have to pay for any of the custom fitting process, and you were looking for a marginally stiffer boot than the bear tooths, it might be an acceptable option. But even if that was the case, I think there's better boots out there. Um, simply because the, the lower cuff, I don't like. The non-locking uh, lacing hardware, I don't like. I find them they're just a bit of an odd shape as well. Anyways, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go on. That's essentially the review. If anybody has any questions, feel free to get a hold of me. Email j at mindfulhunter.com, Instagram, mindful underscore hunter, YouTube, mindful underscore hunter. You do me a big favor, like, comment, share, subscribe on whatever platform you're enjoying this. Let's fuck up the algorithm. It would be deeply appreciated. As always, I appreciate the support. And thanks for tuning in.